Welcome. This is Beyond the Illusion. Thanks for joining us. In today's episode, we have a conversation with shamanic practitioner Heather Davies. Heather has generously provided us with the following description. Heather Davies is a gender-fluid depth creature and shamanic practitioner with Celtic and Germanic roots who is passionate about helping folks reconnect with their authentic voice, truth, and path through the development and deepening of their relationship with what Heather calls the seven spokes of shamanic practice. These are the directions, the elements, animal energies, plant energies, movement, sound, and the ancestors. Heather offers individual coaching, opening to the ancestors groups, rituals, and ceremonies in Austin, Texas. We have a truly heartfelt conversation with Heather in this episode, and before we go straight into it, I wanted to share one of my favorite things Heather said while we were talking. Right, we're so focused in this culture about making things happen and doing it and like envisioning it and manifesting and making it, right? And this is so much about like the magic is already there. It's right here where we are. And so much of it is about just allowing it to be present and allowing yourself to have enough value to be in relationship with it. Now, let's go to the conversation with Heather Davies Diana, and myself. And it looked like you had a pretty interesting and diverse past, you know, as far as work goes, like you've done a lot of different things. Do you want to just quickly tell us about yourself and maybe some of the stuff that you have done? Sure. Yeah. I think like a lot of people, like different parts of my life feel like different lifetimes. (laughs) So um, I spent nine years active duty in the Navy. So I'm a veteran. During that time, I'll name just because it's relevant, I think, to what we're talking about today. I lived for two years. One of my duty stations was in Wales in the United Kingdom, which is actually where my grandfather's father immigrated from. And that was a really powerful and impactful uh, opportunity and time for me because of that connection and kind of what it awoke in me. After I got out of the Navy, I spent a few years working for um, a Unity Church here in Austin, Unity Church of the Hills. I went to school through the Unity organization, I guess, and did all my pre-divinity requirements. I thought I was going to go to divinity school. I helped the church while I was there at the time. We built a new church, and the first Sunday in that church, I stood in the back of the sanctuary and said, oh my gosh, I'm done here. And just felt like, oh my God, what comes next? And um, my therapist at the time had said, well, I keep figuring out, trying to figure out how to get you to social work school. And I had a very limited view of what social work was. And I said, why would you want to do that? (laughs) And uh, as I got clearer about that, that really felt like the right path. So I I went and got my master's in uh, clinical social work. And then from there, I worked uh, at a variety of agencies in town, at Waterloo Counseling Center for a while, at the UT Counseling and Mental Health Center, worked with their Voices Against Violence program for quite a while. And then in 2010, I started my private practice full-time, my clinical practice. And a couple of years later, well, actually a few years after that, I guess, I actually split off a separate shamanic practice from my clinical practice. So the two practices definitely kind of cross-pollinate and inform each other for sure. Uh, but it felt important on an energetic level and to honor the work and the differences in the work needed to be held by kind of separate structures in this plane. So, um, so and in an order there, I've also worked for a couple of other agencies, Capital Area Counseling, and done some work over with Imagine Art. And so just some different places around town that I really honor and love the work that happens there. So. You were recommended to me by one of your students who was taking your opening to ancestors course. And she was telling me a little bit about the course. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting. In our culture, in our Western culture, we don't talk about ancestors very much. We have such a disconnect from that 
And for myself, I had about five years ago in 2015, I had a kind of kundalini activation, which led to sort of a dark night of the soul. And my dark night of the soul time was a very spiritually intense time when my ancestors started coming to me. It wasn't something I'd even thought of, but while I was going through this kind of deep transformation, I started to have during my meditation, um, my mom is from Japan. I started to, and I didn't know any of that side of the family um, and that ancestry. And, and Japanese are very private and my mom doesn't talk about it. So I don't really know much about that side. But I started to have in meditation and in dreams, these um, Japanese women <laughs> from, I don't, there, was, there was this one that I really remember where I, it was, I think this was a dream where I was, it was sort of like I was in a dentist chair, like I was laying back and there was a light shining and they were, someone was doing work on me, but it was my left side, the feminine side. And then all around the chair were these Japanese women that I didn't know, but they felt like they were my ancestors and it was part of the work that we were doing together. And so during that deep, dark, transformative time, there were times when they would come and there was a feeling of, and the realization, because, you know, during that time in the dark night of the soul, it felt like, why is this happening to me? Why is it so hard? How am I ever going to get out of this? And so forth. But there was the realization. Or, and also they told me, no, you you came in to do this work for us, with us. And um, I've seen that since then with a number of my clients, with my hypnotherapy clients, some of them, that some of the light workers, I don't know, maybe we all or maybe some of them, we chose to incarnate in certain bloodlines and certain lineages to come and do the healing for different issues. I love the ancestors. <laughs> I, um, when it's so, it's so exciting and rewarding and moving to me whenever I hear stories like yours or get to be part of somebody's journey of, sometimes it's about recognizing the ancestors that they've been there, right? And that sometimes we just didn't know or we didn't know we could turn towards them. The narrative of the overculture in this part of the world is such a narrative of disconnection. It's such a narrative of self-made and I've got to do it on my own. And so we get really brought up, a lot of times if you're brought up in this culture, regardless of where the lines come from, it's like a lot of that gets cut off and it's like there's these blinders. And so there may be all this support here around us resource-wise, but we've not been, there, there haven't been a lot of models of what it means to like pull those blinders down and to turn and ask for help or to even contemplate that help might be there or support might be there. And I always say with lineage work, like we didn't create it on our own, we can't heal it on our own right? Like lineage work is so much bigger than any one of us. And so it's so beautiful when the ancestors show up of their own accord to, to offer help. Um, my experience of that realm generally is that they aren't coercive, right? And so they, they'll show up if invited. If sometimes we invite them and don't realize we invited them. We invite them in a moment of desperation of like, someone please help me, especially in some of those dark nights of the soul, those underworld journeys where it just feels like we're getting ripped into you on a soul level, on a heart level. And yet it's just so beautiful. I think just the things that I've gotten to witness over the years and every week, I just am reminded of like how how grateful I feel to get to do this work and walk with people as those awakenings happen. Because once the awakening happens and there's a connection to something generative in the line, and for sometimes that takes a while because the most recent generations may be really fraught with tension or conflict or abuse or misuse of power. But once a generative connection is opened up to somebody in the line, they might be 10 generations back. <laughs> that then's not going to get undone. You know, it's like, and that now exists as a resource that that person can call on moving forward. So I uh, really appreciate you sharing that story. It felt so, yeah, so just touching to, to hear them showing up. I can just kind of feel and see them around the dentist chair. Yeah, you've told that story before, Tiana, but I didn't, I don't remember you telling the part about the Japanese women around you like that in a dentist chair. Yeah, that's very interesting. Have you had any personal experiences with your own ancestors, Heather? Oh my gosh, yeah, that's how this all opened up. <laughs> um, about, probably about seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, it really stemmed out of, way back in like 2008, I had a lot waking up. Um, I was 
trained training as a clinical social worker in more Western mental health, but I was working in a program that was doing improvisational theater from a social justice context out of Augusto Boal's work from Brazil. And it was, it's a very embodied, that piece of work is very embodied. And so we were doing these, they call them, he calls them games for actors and non-actors, this book that he wrote. We were doing these as, as improv warm-ups with people. And I was just like, why are we not using this therapeutically with people? Like this is like, the, there's so much here. And it was just like awakening, but I didn't have mentorship for it. And I was really concerned. I, I, I want to practice ethically, of course, and didn't know where to get the kind of training that I needed. And in that year, I had two paths that opened up. One was the shamanic path and the other was the stance movement therapy path that I'm still training in. When the shamanic path woke up, it was it just felt like home. I really struggled. I'm very passionate also about social justice. I'm very aware of my whiteness and my white skin and my European heritage. And I, it's a question I ask myself every day is how do I do this work as ethically as possible with white skin in the current context, wanting to be not culturally appropriate to honor all the different pieces. And it's a question at times that has really torn me in two. And so I really pushed the gifts away for a long time. I tried to call them other names, animism. I've tried to play with different things. Whenever I don't step into the idea of a shamanic practitioner, I get sick and I can't support my system. And it's happened over and over and over again to enough times where I've had to figure out how to stand in that. And so one of the ways that I could figure out to do this as appropriately as possible in terms of my culture and honoring other cultures and the culture that I come from was to dive into my own roots, which for a lot of people with European heritage, those roots in many cases, um, particularly around these kinds of gifts, are a severed path. The annihilation of those gifts in Europe happened as part of colonization prior to the colonization on this continent, the burning of the witches, the annihilation of a lot of the folk healers that was systematically done. And that's just been stuff that I've started to sort out. Max Dashu's work has been super helpful for me in that, the work that she's done. And so I just really started asking for help, didn't know where to ask for it from. And so ancestors started show up to show up. They were more immediate ancestors, like my great grandfather on my mom's side was the first one that started to open up. And he was connected to those gifts in some way. And so he started to lead the path that started to open those. And it's such an interesting thing. It's like when that starts to open and the curiosity flows and you have internal permission for it to flow, then like there's more information that starts to come from this realm sometimes. Like Tiana, you were saying you don't know a lot about your Japanese heritage because your mom doesn't talk about it. It's like there were lots of things that wouldn't, weren't talked about and suddenly this whole pile of photos showed up. It felt like almost out of nowhere that went back six generations. And which is such a privilege to be able to have that kind of information. And then in those photos, just feeling there would be certain ones that would grab my attention. And as I would sit with those, it would start to open up a relationship with that ancestor. And as that opened up, I would start to feel binds in my body that maybe had to do with pieces of their story. Right. And so then as, as you turn towards the bindings, it frees that ancestor that was bound, but also frees you. Right. There's a reciprocity in that relationship. That's part of a lot of folks when they start in that like you said, Diana, in that dark night of the soul, or like, why do I have to do this? It's so heavy. You know, like there's that sense. And then once I find once folks get a feel for it and you start to feel the reciprocity of that idea that none of us drops into this life alone, right? Like we're all part, we came from someplace and we're going to someplace our energy is like, you know, from the ancestors to progeny, whether you have children or not, right? Like it passes through the line and there's just so much, amazing I think healing that starts to happen that then can be brought to the land that we're on to the ancestors that are on that land it just becomes this huge spiral that I believe helps move us all forward yeah you mentioned earlier uh improv therapy and do you incorporate that in your work now that's a really interesting concept by the way I hadn't really ever heard of that before yeah, when I, the work I was doing there, it wasn't actually improv therapy, it was improv theater that we were using because I was also in an educational role as well as a clinical role at UT. So they were using it um, 
uh, in a program called Theater for Dialogue that was helping people look at issues of sexual assault, stalking, and domestic violence and being able to pull it apart and play with it a little bit in the dynamics. Uh, but those pieces that came from that, yeah, I, that's really what got me sinking into the dance movement therapy work um, and bringing a lot of that play and working with spontaneity and the body and the tissues. Because for me, with this shamanic work, with the ancestral work, the body is the portal to the soul. So it's like it's starting. I am so not interested in doing work that's disembodied because I feel like when we leave the body behind, a lot of times we move too quickly and we don't get an integrated experience. Um, and then it can actually end up harming us or others, you know. But if we stay with the body, the body seems to be able to help keep us paced in a way that we increase and develop our capacity commensurate with the energy that we're drawing in and kind of bringing out to the world. And that's a concept I work with all the time, and it comes way back from that initial work. And I love that you brought that piece about the body up because that's that's been my challenge in my journey. Like I was doing that other way that you said, where I just leave my body and oh, it's so nice up there. And then now in the recent years, like I said, since since that dark night of the soul, I recognize you know that transcending that sort of the the masculine path. You know, we're talking about all of this masculine energy that has been really um, dominant or predominant in the world. And that reflects a lot in the spiritual practices that have been um, predominant. And then now just not that one's better than the other, but like that we need both. And we've been kind of too far tilted in one direction. It makes sense that, you know, that we need to come back into body-based spiritual practices to connect with the feminine, the body's the feminine and, and the earth is the feminine. And so this is why for me, this is very interesting because I've struggled with that. And, and I think there are others too. It's, it's easier just to, to want to, go beyond and not deal with what's right here. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that is so supported and validated by the overculture and the dominant paradigm, right? I mean, I think that's part of the, it's part of what's gotten us to the place that we're struggling collectively right now, because we've left the earth behind and we leave our bodies behind all the time. And that's so supported. That's just considered the norm. So I think it is extra challenging to come back to weaving sky and earth together, heaven and earth, um, that vertical plane integration that really values the divinity of the earth as the feminine divinity and the divinity of the sky as the masculine divinity and that we absolutely need both. You know, there's that, um, I think in the Mexica tradition, a friend of mine had talked about the Omateo, which is often this infinity symbol that's about this weaving that's really a aligned with the rhythm of life and any of us like in trauma work like we are we're always doing this of like we're titrating we're integrating this piece with that piece right you go from resource to trauma or resource to um the scary stuff and and i see that very much between sky and earth that's been a practice and a, a work of mine as well um, and one of my teachers out in santa fe amber gray recently introduced me within the last couple of years to this idea of like i had finally learned how to yield to the earth how to trust it and let it hold me and then she introduced this idea of yielding to the sky. And it was just like my brain was blown when she introduced that. Because I think for me, there's such a sense of a home in the divine feminine. And that when I finally really rooted in that, I felt rejected by the heavens. And it took me a whole nother journey to realize that I actually have access to the sky and the cosmos also. That it doesn't mean like it's that either or just gets so set up in traditional religion and the patriarchal structure, like all of that. So coming back to this both and and having access to both and being able to channel and root in both. It's just such a important journey, I think. Yeah. And, you know, when I think of uh, like a shaman practice, I think of them integrating both of those things seamlessly. You know, at least a good one to me would be. Uh, someone who is very aware of the earth and our bodies and the way that interacts with, you know, those higher concepts, you know, like our soul or our spirit. When you were learning, I guess, becoming a shamanic practitioner, you mentioned on your website that you had a teacher that you learned from. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and how you came to do what you do now? Sure, yeah, that was that whole year in 2008, and it was so funny because um, the person I started working with is here in town, Karen Hutchins, 
adore her. And she's, for me, she's like one of the grandmothers in the area that really holds that um, really strong crone embodied earth energy. And I had been looking a little bit at some of her stuff and I was scared to death to contact her just because, you know, that sense of knowing you have sometimes when you're about to step onto a new path and you can feel it. And yet you also feel the terror of like, this is about to open something that can't be closed back up and I don't know where it's taking me. And I was hemming and hawing. Do I reach out to her? Do I not? I was working at the UT Counseling Center at the time. I get a voicemail or one day it's from Karen. And I've never talked to her at all. I've never sent her an email, nothing. She says that she had my name and her my number on her desk, that someone had said that I wanted information about this returning warriors retreat that they offered for veterans. I, I, neither of us to this day know how that got there. And I called her back and we started talking and push, next thing came and I started going to, she has a nurturing our gift circle that she offers that started to open some of this to me. And then she has some classes that she does. I think she has a series called Shamanism in the New Millennium. And she does courses in soul retrieval and curse extraction and trauma bond removal and things like that. And so um, she does a drum making class and rattle making. And so just a little bit at a time each year, I started taking a class here or there. And I have a very long, slow arc of metabolization and integration. So uh, it doesn't work for me to do things really quickly. I have to like do a little bit of something and then literally like take it to the back of my cave and roll it around behind my, you know, between my hands and taste it and feel it and smell it and like move with it. And then I'm ready to take a little bit more in. So I just kind of did that for several years and had her guidance. I had my licensed clinic. I was a licensed clinical social worker already at that time. So I was starting to weave some of these pieces in. Yeah, and it just, you know, and then from that, the ancestors started to open up and I would see her occasionally for a session and she'd say, I don't know what's going on for you, but you got this thing with the ancestors. <laughs> and I started, it's really been in the last three years that I really started to figure out that like, oh, this is actually where one of my gifts are. Like this, not everybody does this, which may seem really obvious, but it wasn't to me at the time. So I started offering these opening to the ancestors group and I have an ongoing group for folks that continue this work monthly for folks that do want to open up that connection and want to bring that back into more of how they move in the world on a day-to-day basis. I saw that one of the topics that you cover in that class is death culture and one's relationship to the death life cycle, which is another thing that I feel is greatly lacking or missing in our culture. Can you talk on that a bit? Sure. I don't think we can talk about the ancestors with talking about death, right? Like, I mean, it's one of the things and the themes of that course really just evolve spontaneously out of, I just sat down one day and was like, so the people that I work with with this, what are the things that get in the way? What are the things that they're struggling with the most? And so much of it was exactly what you're saying, Tiana, around the fact that we don't have much of a death culture a lot of times in this country, you know, depending, some folks do manage to preserve more of one from their particular cultures where their lineages came from. But by and large, there's a lot of terror around it. It's not woven into our day to day. So we do a lot of exploring around that. The death culture is a term I learned in grad school. And it's really about like, how, how was death handled when you were a kid? You know, it's like when your pets died, when you found a dead animal on the side of the road, if you had a friend or a grandparent or a parent that passed away or a sibling, were you part of the rituals around that? Were you excluded? Uh, were you allowed to participate? Did anyone talk to you about it? What happened afterwards? Were you alone in your grief? Were you allowed to feel and express grief? You know, so it just helps to begin to ask the questions because so often that's where the first bind is around connecting with the ancestors because it's such a taboo, death is such a taboo subject, you know? So we start opening up the space to be curious. And when we start to be curious, that which is bound begins to soften a little bit. And once it starts to soften, it stops being so monolithic and we start to find that there's different threads and with different threads, we can start to follow them without getting totally overwhelmed. And the life-death life cycle, uh, I really learned that so much from Clarissa Pinkola Estes' work, Women Who Run With the Wolves, any of her books, she's talking about the life-death life cycle. Like she brings that in 
over and over with archetypes and goddesses like La Huesera and La Loba, and she, you know, talks about, and it's that peace that exists in nature. Nature is always constantly holding death and life and rebirth in the palm of its hand. It's such a master at that. And that's usually where in group we are always turning is to the elements and to the natural world, to the plants and the animals um, for guidance and companionship and support around that. Because it's scary to turn towards that when you don't have a template, when you don't have a model. And the reality is we do have a template and a model right outside our doors. But again, we've been taught oftentimes to be so disconnected from that that it takes time to begin to open up a relationship with nature, even for some folks, you know, and the reciprocity, that course is so much built on reciprocity. It's about that piece that we we're not taking. It's about receiving and offering and that there has to be a balance of that with the ancestors, with the animals, with the plants, with the elements, with the earth, with the sky. On your website, you know, speaking of the life and death cycle, you mentioned that you do some land clearing. And to me, that seems like that has a strong correlation with the Native Americans, obviously, because they've been here before on this land before we were here. And um, you do bring that up. And I feel like also when you're speaking that you, you do have a strong connection with the Native American culture. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of when you would do that, like a, a land clearing or balancing, you called it on your website? Yeah, it's so funny. I can't find the right verb for what it is. Like, none of the, like, balancing is kind of, it's almost like a land witnessing or a land meeting or a land encountering. Um, I keep playing with that. It comes out of that place of, like, how do I show up in white skin and honor the land that I'm on and the people that were here and my ancestors were part of a colonial force that devastated the land that I'm on um, and that was very, very hurtful and harmful and annihilated a lot of people. And that's a really hard truth to sit with and yet it's there and it is part of that truth. And part of my actual, the Prussian side of my family immigrated and ended up in Amarillo area even though most of the family that I knew that was living was in Ohio. And so part of that was I need to find my own ancestral line first, because if I'm going to do work here, I didn't want to come through specific Native American traditions because they're not my traditions, the beautiful traditions. But in that sense of, again, not wanting to culturally appropriate, it's through those traditions as a springboard that helped me get back to my line that was severed to begin to wake that up again. And then to be able to come back with my line and say, okay, this is, these are the people that I come from. This is the story that I know that they were part of. And that I really got this model. There's a guy last name of Tomlinson. He wrote a book about Texas uh, called Tomlinson's Hill. And it was about his own reconciliation, about his ancestors. He's a um, white man, his ancestors, who came to Texas um, with slaves. And that when emancipation happened, all of the people in this area took the last name of Tomlinson. It was the last name of the white family. And there's a black man named Tomlinson who plays in the NFL who did the opening to this book. It's such a powerful book. But this man that wrote the book did a lot. He was a, um, a correspondent in Africa over many, many years for a lot of wars and the recovery from conflicts. And he talked about, I think it was the Ethiopian reconciliation tribunals. And that he said that he came to these homes where two people lived next to each other that had been opposite sides of the conflict, where one person had killed members of the other person's family, and that they were now living side by side in harmony and in in a reciprocal relationship and his mind was blown and he went to them and said, how is this possible? The things that they delineated that made that possible was that the person who had committed the pain and the violence needed to be able to bear witness from the standpoint of the person whose family had been killed to what that had meant to them, what their experience had been. They had to bear witness to what had happened. And then from that place, it wasn't about saying, I'm sorry. They talked about that I'm sorry actually puts the onus again on the person who experienced the violation, but that then it was the responsibility of the person who had, in a sense, perpetrated to set about doing acts of service over time to rebuild trust 
in the commitment to have a different kind of relationship. And so that's really the model that I've used in my own reconciliation with the land and with the Tonkawa people who were the most recent carers for this land, right? There wasn't necessarily a sense of ownership of the land. The land owns itself. It's sovereign unto itself. But that they were the people whose land this was, they worked and lived in harmony with the ecosystem here, with the bison and the wolves and the deer. Apparently the porcupine and the armadillos, because when we were doing our opening meditation, those two showed up really strong for the first time ever. I was like, wow, okay, you all are here. But it was to like, in a sense, kind of present myself and my lineage and say, I'm here on this land. I started with the land that my house is on, that I have an agreement to care for this land and said, um, I'm I am willing to bear witness to what needs to be seen about what's happened on this land and to set about things being different. And so I started to get journeys that would show up where I would be shown pieces of violence that happened against the Native people in this area on this land. And as I bore witness, right, it's painful to watch. There's deep emotion. Um, it moves things in me. Like I'll get emotional just talking about it. And I feel so grateful to those ancestors on the land because they have really turned towards and welcomed me in that work. And then they stand with me when I go, if I'm invited out someplace to go be with that land, right? They go with me and they help almost as like that we arrive on the land and they help to say like, we walk with her also. <laughs> and we come in peace and we come to do this work and and they show me a lot of times what to do because I don't know the traditions of this particular land, right? So a lot of times I'm not sure what to do or what needs to happen. And so I just listen. Before I met with you all, I went on a walk at a green area near here, just listening to what needs to happen here. Like why this now? Because I tend to keep a relatively low profile. So for me to do a podcast <laughs> feels like mm, something's opening here. And when I went on that walk, I was down by this creek area and I looked down and this rat or bull snake was sitting sunning um, and he saw me and he kind of wiggled for a little bit and I watched him for a little while. And then at some point he turned into the water and as he was turning into the water, this hawk way back in this tree got super loud. And then I turned around and tried to find it and then everything got like super still. And it just, it felt like in that moment, it was saying like the windows open, be seen, be heard, and then the window will close and you can be still again. You know, but that comes from the relationship with the land. And on that walk, then it was about expressing gratitude for that afterwards and calling them in when we were doing our meditation, feeling the snake and the hawk here. And yeah, so it, it just all stair steps, you know, it all, it's like a foundation that just keeps building the more that you open to it. And some of it's hard, some of it's really hard, but some of it's so incredibly beautiful. Are there any practices that someone who's wanting to start to open to their ancestor? I mean, obviously, they should take your class, but something that they could do right now that might start to build that connection or? Sure. Yeah. You know, I really love, there's a man named Daniel Four who wrote a book called Ancestral Medicine recently in the last couple of years. There's an interview with him on Joanna Harcourt's Future Primitive podcast from a couple of years ago that I think is a really great one to listen to. He introduces this idea of the last well ancestor. And I, I loved that. And I really weave that into the work that I do with folks. And folks, not everybody wants to do this in a group setting, right? So um, lot, lots of folks want to do it more individually because it's so vulnerable and it's so personal. He talks about, you know, reaching out and setting an intention to reach out or even just saying whether you're somebody that uses prayer or meditation or however you think about putting energy out into the universe or intention. But you can just put an intention that I'm really interested in opening up a relationship with my last well ancestor. And keeping in mind that that last well ancestor may show up in human form in how you sense them, whether your gifts are such that you see images or that you feel you're more kinesthetic and you feel a sense of somebody or hear somebody, that they may show up as human. They also might show up as an animal. 
when we did our opening meditation, like I saw the mastodons come in, right? They're also our ancestors, the animals. Um, it could show up as a plant. Sometimes in the groups that I lead, folks have a redwood that comes in or a coniferous tree of some kind, if it's more northern, you know, a place or the loblolly pines out in fast drop, right? That there may be, um, however the person needs that to show up. <laughs> And you may not think it's how you need yourself to show up, but that realm knows, has such a wisdom about what a person needs or what they're going to be receptive to. And that once it shows up, it's about showing up regularly to meet that energy and to listen. You know, you might have questions and you can certainly put questions out there, but so much of the beginning part of that relationship I find is about listening, observing and listening. And that if that energy asks that it wants you to bring a bowl of salt water into the middle of your altar and change it out every three days, that you honor that and that's what you do. That this is how we build trust and relationship. It's about steady, being steady and present and predictable, doing what we say and saying what we do, like showing up. And it's the same thing with that realm, with the non-ordinary reality or the ancestral realm is like, okay, if you asked me to do that and I said I was going to do it, now I need to do it. And when I do that regularly, I build trust. And as trust is built, they show up even more for me. And then I even want to show up more for them because you start to feel the support and it becomes this really tender, just sweet exchange, right? You're not alone. You're, you've got somebody's there with you and you're actually in relationship. That's beautiful. You just triggered a memory for me on my Japanese side. Again, I think Shinto beliefs. I'm not sure even very, I don't really know that much about that, but about my mom's brother, my uncle losing his, his dog passed away and then him sitting out food and water for, and I was thinking, oh, I, there, I'm thinking at that time that that was crazy. Like I, at that point I was thinking like, that's so strange, but not really getting that. I think there's probably a, a rich tradition on that side of my family that is more connected with the ancestors, but they're losing that now and kind of moving away from that. So, that, cause it, it still, it still sounds odd to me, but now I get it. But like, I, I don't think in our culture that that would be seen as normal at all. That'd be seen as really odd. Yeah, we've lost so much of that. It's so commonplace in so many cultures that the altars to the ancestors include foods that they that they loved when they lived, right? That's such a commonplace thing outside of the U.S. in other outside of the West, probably. Yeah, I know. It's um, it's funny that you're you're bringing this up, Tiana, because I have a memory now too that I have had a similar experience where. And it's kind of like what you were saying, Heather, is like, if you, if you enter this dialogue with them, then like you start to get real answers and it's kind of funny how that works. Like if you never try, like you never hear anything, but I had a past life regression with Tiana a long time ago when we first met. And one of the first things that happened in that session was I saw my grandmother and she was cooking and she was showing me like, here's what you do with the food. Here's how you should bless the food before you eat it. And I thought that was so out of place, you know, like I'd never thought about that in my life before ever. But, you know, sure enough, you know, now if I am cooking something or if I'm around food, I'll ask her like, you know, what should I do? And she will, she'll tell me like, you know, this is where you should put your hands and, and, you know, just think those thoughts that you're supposed to think right now and the food will be blessed. And it's really amazing how different the food is too. When, at least to me, I don't know if anyone else can tell, but yeah, to her, that was important. And apparently to me, that's important too. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was just something that came through, but you know, I don't think that would have ever happened if I hadn't really honestly opened into a dialogue with her that way. And, you know, that I I did want to mention, too, we kind of moved past it, but that story that you said about the snake and the hawk and then that little window of time, you know, where it screeched out, that's a beautiful story. And I think those kind of things happen to us regularly if we're paying attention, because I've had similar experiences where I'll be in nature and, and, and it will be such a unique personal experience that almost you can't explain to other people. But yeah, we, we really are missing that too, being inside and, and in our heads all the time, I think. That's one of the gifts of this crazy time that we're in, 
and with the quarantine things and so forth, I think I know for myself, but I know for a lot of other people, like suddenly having more time and feeling a strong desire to be out in nature and um, to connect. And um, yeah, even today I went on this walk out in nature and, and I was thinking that there was like quite a lot of animal interactions I had. There were like two deer and this was like walking on a regular path. There were like two deer very close that were just sitting there looking at me. And then I, I saw a little snake and then a hawk. Yeah. And so I was just like, wow, there's, you know, I was like, I was thinking kind of, was I just not paying attention before? And I really think that I wasn't just like you're saying, it, it is about like slowing down and listening. And usually we're putting things out versus taking things in and especially from nature which is the most beautiful place to take things in from versus social media and all of that other craziness where we're usually taking things in so there's like a really big blessing of the time that we're in right now i was wondering if there are other things about the ancestors that we haven't touched on that you wanted to share that's important or do you feel like this is a good starting place for people well, I, I think just that, um, off that last piece that you just shared is the, the main verb, I think, that I, all, I often emphasize with folks around this ancestral work and around with, again, I, I take all of nature as part of our ancestry. So, you know, but it's allowing, right? We're so focused in this culture about making things happen and doing it and like envisioning it and manifesting it and make it. Right, and this is so much about, like the magic is already there. It's right here where we are. And so much of it is about just allowing it to be present and allowing yourself to have enough value to be in relationship with it. And one of the things that often gets in the way of, just like you were saying, you were out walking and like, was I just not paying attention before? Right. And like you, there's this question and sometimes folks start to pay attention, but when they pay attention, this other voice in their head discounts it. Right. Like I didn't really see that or that wasn't, that was just random. That wasn't really meant for me. I just saw that because I saw that on a TV show last night. Right. Like there's all these ways that we are taught to discount the realness of those connections. You know, in shamanic practice, we call it ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. I love that because some folks need to call it imagination because it makes it less scary. For folks that really have this strong, alive connection to nature, when you call it imagination, you actually disempower that connection, right? Because it is a reality, it's just non-ordinary reality. And so a lot of the work in the ancestors group and for folks who might be working with this on their own is beginning to play with allowing that to be real. Those connections. What does that mean? <laughs> if on that walk, those two deer showed up across your path because they were meant to be there and because there was a relationship between you and the universe. And what does it mean? If, I mean, think about it. If I had been to see that snake two minutes afterwards, it would have been gone. And, and again, not to put like, you think you can also go overboard and make it all about all of that, you know? So it's finding this balance, but I find in this culture, mostly people struggle with giving it validity, whatever they sense. So I just encourage you to play with allowing yourself to trust what you sense. If what those deer show up and you're like, I think those deer were here because of such and such, what, what happens if you trust that? Go for it, follow that, see what happens, allow. Yeah, that's that's excellent advice. I feel like that's kind of how you live your life. You you trust that inner voice and you kind of just follow it. And I do now. It's been a lot of years getting here. <laughs> a yeah. lot to undo. Yeah, of course. It's it's kind of scary to to live like that. Yeah. So there there is something that I wanted to ask you. And I do I ask this in in different ways to every person that we have on the podcast. As far as like um the energies or the the awareness of, of the people on the planet right now, it feels like there is a bit more of a, uh, at least a raising of that level of consciousness happening, at least from my point of view. And I saw that on your website, you actually said that um, this is a crucial time for us in our history as a species. And I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what you mean by that. 
all of it's a big mystery, right? I think we just start from that premise. None of us know can know where this is going. I always go back to that sense that my understanding is in uh, the Chinese written language that the characters for crisis are the character for danger included with the character for opportunity. I feel like that's so much of what evolution is based off of is these crisis moments. And then how does each species, each individual, how does the collective choose to adapt to either evolve out of that and into something new or to not evolve and to, in essence, extinguish itself? I think there's been a really strong sense for me ever since I got into the shamanic work. And I remember sitting in one of Karen's circles and someone saying at that time, it must've been back in like 2009 or 2010, saying that there was some sense or they'd read something that like 2012 to 2022, 2025, somewhere in there was this really crucial like decision point. And now that we're in this and have been in this for a while, there's just like everything in my being knows that for me, I agreed to be here during this to help mid, to help be a small piece of the midwiving of what's trying to emerge, what's trying to come into being. I may not be here when it actually comes into being. I don't know, right? Like I, I don't have any, I have some control over that. But again, that death force, there's a certain amount of surrender and yield that has to happen to that. But I do feel like there's so much, so many people waking up and remembering it's almost like as if from a trance that are starting to see things with different eyes and hear things with different ears. I work predominantly with folks that have high sensitivity and high, highly sensitive gifts. And I often call many of us with those gifts, and you all may feel this some with yourselves too, but sometimes are the canaries in the mind, right? People who have been who are sensitive and have been connected to the earth for decades have been screaming and wailing and crying and trying to get people's attention. And it's like the dominant bulldozing forces just are like, don't see, don't hear, and just keep moving forward. And I think we're getting to a critical point where can that voice and all that activity be strong enough to stop this kind of ramrodding force and bring us into different choices as a collective. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think any of us do. I know we can each do what our gifts are to try and contribute to that and to put that energy and to bring love and love and love in embodied forms, to bear witness to some of the pain of the past so that any energy or beings that are bound are free to also move forward and stand with us. Um, whether that's in human bodies or whether that's in the ancestral realm. I know that there's a lot of support out there for us, I think, on the ancestral. The ancestors, to me, are so present right now, and they get so excited when somebody's willing to turn towards them and be in relationship because that's really, they can be so much more effective that way. That's really kind of what I balance on is I kind of put one foot in front of the other each day through this. So much unknown and so much uncertainty is just like, kind of today in this moment, what's the next right step for me? How can I contribute? What do I need to take care of myself so that I can still be in the fight, so to speak, (laughs) in trying to move, um, be part of what's moving the collective in a different direction that also includes the earth again, and the bodies and vulnerability and generativity and kindness. Yeah, that was a fantastic answer. (laughs) Is there anything else that you want the listeners to know or how they can find you? Well, I just want to say thank you to both of you, first of all, for the opportunity um, to be with you both. And um, I've been listening to several of your podcasts over the last week or two um, and have just so appreciated the work that you're doing and the voices that you kind of bring out in the open. If folks are interested in learning more about my particular work, seawindaustin.com is the great place to go. It's S-E-A, it's the Scottish spelling of wind, W-Y-N-D, Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N.com. And that can at least get them to more about this work and the opening to the ancestors group. I don't have another one scheduled right now. It's all kind of on hold for the, this uh, COVID journey we're on, but. All right. Well, thank you so much. I know you don't come on podcasts and do this kind of thing a lot, but you know, you're very well spoken and very interesting. So, you know, we're lucky to have you on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Heather. It was wonderful. 
You bet. Thanks, Diana. Thanks, Tim. Sure. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Illusion. I'd like to say thank you very much to Heather Davies for taking the time to talk with us and for sharing their knowledge and gifts with us. If you're interested in learning more about Heather's offerings, please visit seawindaustin.com. And remember, wind is spelled with a Y. S-E-A-W-Y-N-D, austin.com. All of Heather's offerings seem extremely interesting to me, especially the opening to ancestors groups. The topic of ancestors has been coming up around me a lot recently, and it's become clear to me that taking the time to honor our ancestors is something that could probably provide a lot of insight into ourselves. So thanks again, Heather, for the important work that you are doing. I'd also like to take this time to thank Tiana Roser for all the work she does to keep this podcast interesting and going strong. I'd also like to thank Casey Henson for the music we use on this podcast. For more information about us or to access past episodes, please visit our website, beyondtheillusionpodcast.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. This will help other people find us. Take care.